Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey everyone, welcome to the Heart Over Hype podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Shamar Charles. This podcast focuses on the goal of providing unique and culturally sensitive perspectives on physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health and wellness. Our goal is to provide you with the best millennial and Gen Z health news you can use. If you like this podcast, follow us on Instagram at HOH the podcast and give us a rating of five stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Now, without further delay, let's get started. Hey y'all, it's your favorite neighborhood doc, Dr. Shamar Charles, and today we're unpacking white privilege and white fragility, two concepts that are dominating the airwaves, but also poisoning our society. To help break this down, I have with me Gabby Timmis, an amazing former colleague of mine at NBC. She currently does frontline voter advocacy work in Michigan. You know how important that work is because Michigan is a purple state. Thank you so much for being here with us, Gabby. But before we dive into the issues, can you tell us a little about yourself? How do you become interested in politics and media and the intersection of the two? I think I always have to start off from when I was younger and growing up, you know, I was a pretty unremarkable student. I was a pretty unremarkable athlete, you know, and I was and I was the youngest of four and had a big group of 14 friends. And, you know, I kind of saw a lot of people around me found their thing and I was very much so trying to find mine. And I think honestly, just through the process of that, just because I didn't have a lot that I was really interested in myself, I just naturally became more interested in other people. I think they were just, um, I was more curious and maybe even nosy about, you know, how were they thinking the way they were, you know, what was going on and, you know, how they were navigating their decisions in their life. And that was kind of something that was uh, just grounding in my personality. I think that's one part of it. And then, um, you know, really with politics, I always kind of say, you know, some kids grew up tossing the ball with their parents. Like my mom and I really grew up sitting at the kitchen table and talking about what was going on in the world openly. And she was a person, she was born in Philadelphia, but grew up in Belgium. And so she was someone who always would remind you know, me and my three siblings, like, where do you live right now? Because, you know, we were born and raised in Metro Detroit, which, you know, is worth noting is one of the most segregated areas of our country. Um, you know, she would constantly remind us, like, this is not reflective of the rest of the world. This is not reflective of reality. Like, I need you guys to know that just going off in the world. And I certainly, you know, came to realize that as an adult, and especially, you know, moving from Michigan, growing up in Michigan, going to college in Michigan and then moving to New York and working on BC, you know, um, such a positive experience to just get a different perspective, certainly. So going back to media and politics, it's just something I've always been interested in people and um, certainly influenced by my mom and her her desire to uh, ensure that her kids are, you know, plugged into the world and knowing what's going on and all of that. Interestingly enough, most parents try to shield their children from the issues but your mom decided to discuss them with you, and she decided to discuss these things openly, which gave you a decidedly big advantage on other children because she developed your critical thinking skills very early. By the way, to any parents who are, uh, who are listening, that is a big parenting note, right? Discuss the issues. Um, and uh, as a result of this, you are one of the most informed consumers of information that I know. While at NBC, I covered health, you covered education, and I was always really impressed by how much you knew about all different topics and how you were able to connect with people across all different walks of life. Um, And so I really do respect your opinion. And that's why I want to know what your opinions were uh, with respect to all of the events that took place this past Wednesday. What the fuck? I know, like me, you were glued to the TV. What were your initial thoughts when you saw the rioters storm the Capitol buildings? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I've heard over and over again, but it's true is, you know, shocked, but not surprised. And again, it's like, if you're paying attention, this, this was not surprising. You know, we knew this was going to something like this was going to happen. We saw the pot getting stirred. I mean, not just for the past couple of months, but for the past couple of years. Um, and so, but certainly shocked and, and to see um, the rioters get be, get past the Capitol Hill police and get into the Capitol and, you know, be in, uh, you know, the Senate chamber and all of that. I mean, that was truly just it was just shocking. And, 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 um, you know, and, and I think with all these types of things, you kind of learn to process it and as the days go on. And I, and I, the next day I felt really angry and I felt really resentful and I felt really, I felt honestly just upset because I felt like we knew this was going to happen. And so many people turned a blind eye and would pretend that it wasn't as harmful as it actually was and the rhetoric and the lies and all of that wasn't a big deal. And, it, you know, there's that quote that I think people on the right had had said before that's like, um, you know, uh, critics of Trump take him literally but not seriously and followers of Trump take him seriously but not literally. But we know they do take him literally. They take him very literally. And as, you know, as we saw from that, um, you know, the attack on the Capitol, of course they take him literally. He's our president. I share your anger and frustration, I really do. But my anger stems from the blatant differences between how white people and everyone else are treated in this country. If the federal government knew that a group of black or brown protesters were even planning to show up at Capitol Hill, there would have been thousands of law enforcement professionals on deck with specific orders to use force when necessary, and we both know that's true. And don't get me started on how these mostly white rioters were able to casually waltz into the Capitol buildings. It screams inside job, it really does. It speaks to the level of white privilege that exists in this country. And the implicit bias that we always talked about, it's blatantly obvious that it's become explicit bias. And this shit permeates our everyday lives and it needs to stop. It's clear that these brainwashed MAGA supporters are unaware of their white privilege. Or maybe they just know that it exists and they don't give a fuck. And I'm, and I'm going to guess that they're probably even more unaware of their white fragility. FYI, for all of you who may not know, white fragility is that super sensitive overreaction that you get from white people when uh, black and brown people make the connection between their actions and race. If you ever heard, uh, why are you always making things about race? Uh, then you've experienced white fragility. In fact, in Robin D'Angelo's book titled White Fragility, she lays out a theory of white sensitivity to issues surrounding race. She argues that our largely segregated society is set up to insulate white people from racial discomfort, so they fall to pieces at the first application of stress. That shit is fucking alarming. Anyway, thank you for letting me opine for a bit here. So uh, my question to you is this, Gabby. What is white privilege to you? And how is that different from white fragility? And are the two separate phenomena or are they intertwined with one another? Oh, so I mean, I certainly think white privilege and white uh, fragility are intimately intertwined. I mean, you know, even I was talking to a friend about what happened and uh, they stopped responding to me and they said, you know, I'm so sorry. I just, you know, it's so fucked up what's going on and I just can't bring myself to pay attention. I just want to keep my head down and ignore it and hope it goes away. I don't want to think about it right now. That is white privilege. That person has the privilege and the ability to keep their head down and pretend what's going on isn't going on. And it's also fragility because they're unable to look internally and say, what's going on and how did I contribute to this and what can I do to make it better? And, you know, and, and not have being able to navigate those. So 
So privilege is, you know, the ability to opt in or out of what's going on in the world and decide whether or not you want to be affected by it, decide whether or not you want to do something about it. That decision is inherently privilege because so many people are just in, are just going to be affected by it just because of who they are, what their skin color is, where they live, you know, people don't, most people in this country don't have the opportunity to opt out of what's going on. So, so if you do have that chance, that is inherently privilege. Uh, fragility is the inability to look introspectively within yourself and think, you know, first of all, why is this going on? What does it say about me? How did I contribute? And, and why am I so scared to even talk about some of that stuff? That is um, to me, the ultimate fragility, the, the inability to really look within within all of ourselves. And I think that really is, as you said, something that's actually unfortunately pervasive in the white community that we have a hard time looking internally. Maybe it's because we, again, have that privilege that we don't have to always look internally, that it's something we can decide whether or not to do when other people in this country are constantly getting feedback of who they are, what they're doing, how they're doing it. And so they don't have the opportunity to opt in or out of, of those, um, you know, that feedback and thinking it through. Do you have conversations about white privilege and white fragility with your friend groups? I know I certainly have these conversations uh, with my group. Um, and I want to know when these events are happening, are you guys discussing what the reaction would have been if uh, these uh, protesters, these rioters uh, were African-American? Yeah, I mean, certainly when it started, that was definitely something that uh, my friends and I were talking about. And then after I was talking to a friend who was super concerned with um, censorship and the political establishment, that was their big priority. Um, as someone who was more conservative, they were saying, you know, my big concern isn't the the rioters, it's it's the, it's censorship and the political establishment and all that. And I said, well, if the rioters who attacked the Capitol, if they were black and brown, would that would censorship still be your main priority? Is that your still main concern throughout all of this? And the person was like, well, that's a valid point. And I was like, well, exactly. Because the conversation, if it was black and brown folks attacking the Capitol, I mean, we know they wouldn't even get, you know, that wouldn't even have happened because the police would have come down so much harder. It would have been, you know, there would have been more police presence to begin with, right? But the conversation would, on the right especially, would not be about censorship, would not be about big tech, would not be about the political establishment right now if those if those rioters were black and brown, and, and we know that. And, and, and so to answer your question, did I, were my friends and I talking about that? Certainly. And I think it's such a valid and important point. And I think, you know, I, and I said to my friend, I'm not trying to, I think sometimes people think that bringing up racism distracts from the point. It's like, well, that's not the point. And it's like, that is the point. That is so the point because... If your concern, for example, about big tech and censorship doesn't carry through different contexts, if that's just context specific to, oh, when it's white people, I'm not worried about them, I'm worried about this other problem, but when it's black and brown people, I'm terrified of them, that is, that is that's so intricate with the, part, with the problem. You know, you can't separate the two. So I, you know, I, I do also want to make that point that it's not, it's not surfacing race and racism to distract from the point. It's just so in, intricately embedded in it. Um, so yeah, certainly those conversations are very important to have right now. I'm so happy that you emphasize that racism is the main point here because I don't think that's clear to everyone. It's important to note that America is one of the most racist places on earth. We don't have to look that far. Redlining, Jim Crow, the Black Codes, medical experimentation on black and brown bodies, mass incarceration, the over-policing of black and brown neighborhoods, police misconduct, school zoning, food deserts, targeted junk food marketing. I, I could literally go on for days. 
It's, it's, if there's one thing that I'd like to say to white people, it's that the truth shall set you free. We can't begin to address our many issues without first unpacking America's original sin, which is racism. That's where this conversation starts and ends. Racism is rooted in the fabric of America. So we have to take it out. We have to excise it like a cancer. And we have to acknowledge that the actions needed to undo structural racism are so overdue. That's why black folk weren't at all surprised or shocked by the events that went down on Wednesday. We've been sitting here at the table alone. We've been trying to tell y'all. Fortunately, it seems like we, we have a white populace, a growing younger white population, who are a little bit more woke than their forefathers, who want to join us in this fight, who want to work hand in hand with us to move this shit forward, because I think we all acknowledge that this movement, this social reckoning, if you will, is long overdue. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think one thing to start off with, and I heard this point, um, certainly not an original point for me, but I think it's such an important one, of these two ideas of peace and justice. And oftentimes people think these ideas are in conflict, that you know, um, you know, we either want peace or we either want justice, but we need both and we, they depend on each other, right? In order to have peace, we need justice. We need, you know, there has to be acknowledgement and, and you know, consequences for bad behavior. We need justice. But justice has to also be centered on achieving peace. You know, that's the purpose of justice is moving towards a more peaceful society. It's not just a punitive thing to, you know, keep people down. It's to move forward and, and, and you know, so we can move forward together in a peaceful way. Um, so, so I think that's something, I think that's a really important point. And I think that's certainly something that people are starting to understand more now. Um, and I am optimistic. I mean, and again, I, you know, whenever I think about that, I think about, being optimistic, uh, you know, I think I, I, I need to first acknowledge that, you know, as a white woman, it's easier for me to be op optimistic than it is for most people, you know, because I don't feel the oppression day to day. So I, I need to be honest about that. But I am committed to optimism for an important reason. And that's just because I think it's the only path forward is, is, is but be that optimism being banked in reality, understanding, you know, what's going on. You, you can't, you can't, be optimistic without acknowledging what's happening now. And um, so just to say, um, you know, given the fact that I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful that people will move forward. But I will say that there, there are certain times that I am disappointed. And I think, you know, I think a perfect example is the idea of that the black square is like, you know, people posted the black square when it was their social capital was on the line. And, and when they felt like if they didn't, it would make them look bad. And I feel like sometimes the same people now are not willing to look the problem in the eye and say, hey, that's a huge issue. You know, we just had an insurrection. And, and, and what does that mean? And they're not willing to talk about it. And so, you know, again, I am optimistic about the future. I'm optimistic about the millennial generation, I'm optimistic about the Gen Z generation, I'm optimistic our bit of our ability to move the older generations along with us. But we also need to acknowledge that, you know, these aren't one off things, you can't just temporarily be interested and concerned in the problems in the world, you have to maintain your interest, you have to maintain your focus, and you have to maintain your ability to look those problems in the eye and be, say, you know, I'm going to address this. And I'm going to have the courage to address it, even when it's so difficult. 
I think one of the primary examples of picking and choosing the issues that we care about is seen in Karening. For those of you who don't know, Karening is a colloquial term that is used mainly by African-American people to describe white women who falsely accuse primarily black men of crimes they did not commit. Last week, we saw an example of this on display at the Arlo Hotel when a woman accused a 14-year-old boy of stealing her phone, only to find out later that she left her phone in an Uber. Uh, she even went as far as to tackle the boy, which is deplorable behavior for anyone, but especially for a 22-year-old person who should know better. Um, those events have almost been pushed to the side and minimized because um, it's deemed as uh, less dangerous than what we see uh, or not less dangerous, but uh, less egregious, rather, than what happened uh, in the Capitol this past week. But really, it's not, right? That sort of thing happens every day, and it contributes to the disparities we see in mass incarceration, and it perpetuates this idea that Black people are dangerous, right? Which is simply untrue. Um, so we have to care deeply about all these things, right? Uh, we don't get to pick and choose what we care about, what we deem important, and what's not important. Um, and I get shielding ourselves from all the negativity that's out there uh, in order to protect our health, our mental health. I get that. But we simply have no choice but to care because accountability is key. The lack of accountability for some groups over others is setting America up for failure. It's uh, a really bad precedent that I'm unsure we can come back from if we allow this to further spiral out of control. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I first, I think it's important to acknowledge five people died, you know, so this was a death, this was a bloody coup, you know, there, but there are blood on people's hands right now. So that's, that's certainly something that we should all be thinking about. Um, but in terms of, you know, people's selectivity on what they choose to care about, you know, it's, when I'm navigating an issue, I try to start with what makes me feel most vulnerable? What scares me the most about addressing this issue? You know, and usually it has to do something with myself. You know, the times that I've gotten this wrong, the times that I haven't been as tuned in as I should have. And so start there. So, so if, if, if you've gotten this wrong historically, why? And start exploring that and start doing the private work, the private work to change your mindset, to change your attitude, and then start doing the public work of talking about it. And I think sometimes people maybe focus more on the public work and don't do the private work. And I think that's a part of the selectivity that it's not just about, you know, what people see. It's about literally changing your mindset on this and really committing to, um, you know, focusing on this and then staying engaged and staying informed. Um, but, you know, listen, I understand why people feel like I have to preserve my mental health. I can't be addicted to Twitter. And I understand, like, it's not, <laughs> I do it and it's not always great for my mental health and it's not always the path forward. But, you know, Again, this is a time, this is a moment of courage. We're in a time of, of, of history that it calls for courage. There's no other question for it. And again, you know, when we're growing up and we learn about this, these historic events, whether it's, you know, the civil rights era or the civil war, like we think about what would I have done? Where would I have been? Would I have been someone to step up and take the courageous route? Well, now is your opportunity to really explore that. Are you being courageous in the moment? Are you, you know, thinking beyond your own self and able to see like, how you contribute to it and how you can make it better. Like, is that where you're at? So, you know, it is it is unfortunate that people are, you know, sometimes selective in what they choose to care about. And and certainly, yeah, again, with, you know, the Soho Karen, that was, a, you know, a, a great example of that. And just her, this woman being completely out of line and then having the interview with Gail King where she just 
walks further out of line and, you know, does the hand gesture and that's disgusting. And, you know, again, all of these issues are, are deeply intertwined. So you can't just choose and take and, you know, pick and choose what you want to care about on any given day. These are all so, um, you know, connected to each other. So it's, it's, you can't be selective. You have to be all in or, or you're nothing. We're seeking introspection and behavior change, which is a lot to ask of Americans who seem to have an inherent identity crisis. Uh, we call ourselves the leaders of the free world, but we're also uh, major oppressors of our own people. Uh, I don't want to minimize all of our many freedoms, but our freedom here is not equally distributed um, throughout the country, and there's no surprise there. It's difficult for us to change when our many sides are not talking to one another. We have a lack of conversation, a lack of genuine conversation, because we have a high level of skepticism with respect to the intent of what the other side is bringing to the table. Black and white people are uncomfortable talking to one another. It's even worse between Democrats and Republicans. It seems as if the two sides spend so much time fighting for one another that they forget that they're working for us. As a resident and politically active member of a purple state, are you seeing that people are being categorically dismissive of one another based on their political ideologies? And uh, if so, what impact do you think uh, that's having? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I do try to exist in kind of different spaces and, and, and be, um, you know, I have a friend group that has different opinions um, from, you know, childhood. And then I have family members that certainly have different opinions from my own. And then I also, um, you know, I'm, in, I'm involved in my local community. So, um, you know, I've worked with this organization, Michigan United, which is really focused on economic and social and racial justice. So, you know, those are people that are certainly more progressive than um, some of my other groups. So just, I think existing in these other spaces, um, similarly, is super interesting to get kind of a front row view of how different people navigate these conversations. I think, um, I think you're totally right. I mean, I think between Democrats and Republicans, it's, um, you know, it's, it's almost, it feels almost impossible to have these conversations, honestly, sometimes. Um, you know, something that, you know, as someone who falls on the left, leans left, I think something I try to take accountability for myself is not being not being too militant in my point of view where I'm not willing to hear someone else's. And I and I think that to me has always been a tricky line to toe because especially this summer, you know, I never wanted to be I guess I never wanted to come across open-minded to the fact like does racism exist yes or no you know i never wanted to be quote open-minded in that regard but you know i at the same time i never want to be someone who shuts down conversations conversations as we've already said are so important i mean i think that is the most important thing um you know to do right now and i think sometimes again to to hold myself and, and some of my peers accountable i think sometimes it feels like the brave thing to do to be like fuck you if you disagree with me i'm defriending you on facebook i'm blocking you on this don't talk to me but what I heard this summer from the racial injustice demonstrations, what I heard specifically from black people wasn't, hey, white people, stop talking to each other. I didn't hear that. What I heard was the opposite. I heard white people, this is a white people problem. Go get your people, go talk to you guys, go talk to each other about it. You know, this is on you guys. And, and, and as you said, you know, black people have been showing up to the table for generations. You know, they've been saying, you know, we've been, we know they've been saying what needs to be said all along. We just haven't been able to listen and we're not willing to hear it. So, so you know, in these conversations of Democrats versus Republicans, I think on the on maybe the left side of it, we have to be willing to have conversations and we have to, you know, 
be willing to listen to different points of view, you know, and then on, on the right, I also think, you know, sometimes when I try to navigate these conversations, someone's like, well, you're just going to call me a racist. You're just going to call me a homophobe. Well, I don't do that. I don't try to, I don't use labels in my conversations because I know that can shut down the conversation pretty quickly. Now, I think it's important to call racism what it is that, you know, that being said, but I'm not going to, my prerogative is not to go out and label people. You are a racist. You are a homophobe just because I don't want to shut down conversations. I want to keep it open. So, but I, but just to say on the right, I've heard people even before they even get into a conversation say, well, I'm not going to have this conversation because this is what's going to happen or, you know, you know, whatever. And I, and I just think one thing I just want us to all be aware of is, you know, first of all, especially for white people, for white people, I mean, specifically, this is not the time to be a victim. And, you know, we talk about personal responsibility. Well, this is time to take responsibility for yourself, you know? So, so having these conversations are so important and, and both sides really need to come together and do it. Um, that's not to say that the, I think the problem is on both sides, you know, that's not both sides-ism, but both sides need to come to the table. And, and it's, again, specifically on white people to, to, to do so, because those are the people who need to have these conversations with each other. You're better than me because I call out the racist. Because you know how I feel about this. The truth shall set you free. But on another note, nearly 80 million people voted for Donald Trump in this past election. So clearly his fear-mongering and hateful messaging is resonating with a large group of people in this country. What we saw last week were a group of mostly white men and women who are manipulated into fighting a battle that is rooted in preserving white comfort. Clearly you don't stand for this and you've drawn your line in the sand. How do you remain outspoken, even though your thoughts might be met with some high level of resistance from uh, your white colleagues and peers? Well, I think for me, I think I really try to start with, you know, as much as I run my mouth, I really do try to start with listening and I want to hear people out, you know, and I think, you know, and I, and I not to get soft about it, but I really do think people want to be heard. Now, that's not to say you know, the only reason that people were storming the Capitol is just because they weren't heard enough. You know, I certainly don't want that to be the message. But I think day to day, you know, I want to be someone who is willing to listen and willing to hear you out and willing to, you know, not pass judgment, but try to navigate your own um, opinions with you and say, well, what about this? And have you thought about that? And, and you know, kind of challenge you along the way. And, and, I, and, you know, especially I think with my white friends, when they come to me and they, and my, specifically my white conservative friends, when they come to me with a specific opinion, they know they're not going to come in unchallenged, but they also know that they're not going to come in um, with someone who just wants to shut down the conversation. I want to keep that conversation, you know, alive. So I really do try to come into it with a point of optimism and honestly love and honestly like caring for this other person. Because again, what well, my mentality, what I go back to, again, as a white woman with plenty of privilege, is that, you know, so many people in this country don't have the time or energy to have these conversations because they're worried about food on the table. They're worried about staying in their home. They're worried about their kids staying safe and when they're walking outside door, you know, that they're not being, you know, harmed. So who better to have these conversations than someone who does have that time and energy, who does have the ability to stay patient, stay open, stay willing to hear other people because that's my role here. You know, that's where I'm showing up. It's not by shutting down the conversation. It's not by not listening. It's by saying, hey, you know, given where I stand in society, given my, the amount of privilege that I hold, I'm going to use that to try to keep the conversation open. So that's really my um, priority in all of this. What many people may not know about you, Gabby, is that you have a distinct advantage in that your mom and partner have grown up in different parts of the world, mainly uh, Belgium and Ireland. Um, I spent a lot of my upbringing in Canada 
which is uh, largely the same with respect to infrastructure and industry, but it couldn't be more different ideologically. And I know that that's had a profound influence on how I look at issues around the world. Can you speak to the influence they've had on you and how that shaped your view of politics and social issues? Yeah, so I was actually with my partner, Amit, when these events were unfolding. And it was just, it's interesting to see, because yeah, as someone, he's from, he's Irish, he's from Northern Ireland, as a, he's, and he's um, Irish Catholic. So th that's a super, um, you know, that was a place that had a ton of conflict, you know, from when he was growing up and um, prior to that. So hearing about that and learning from that is certainly an interesting perspective. But, um, you know, as these events were unfolding and being with him and seeing his group chats going off, all of his friends abroad are being like, are you seeing what's going on in the United States? Like, this is crazy. And, you know, they're having these conversations about it. So that was just super interesting. Because again, like, you know, people say, you know, the whole whole world is watching. And, and you know, I was with people from different countries and, you know, they were all watching. They were glued, you know, his his parents were glued to the TV, like, what's going on in the United States? Like, how is this happening? You know, all that. So so that's certainly interesting just to see that, you know, in that real time to see how that was unfolding. But, you know, how I look at these events specifically with, with those two, you know, the perspective of my mom and the perspective of my partner in mind is that, you know, I think I have been uh, lucky to get the, the idea of looking at United States from a lens that isn't filtered through the American lens, you know, and I think that's such an important perspective to have to really be able to step back and, and, and to look, you know, from like almost an outside perspective and see how does the rest of the world see the United States. It's such an important perspective because you really do start to question. And I'm not saying, you know, I, again, I'm someone who's committed to optimism. I'm committed to aspirationalism in the United States. I, I believe we can and will be better, but are we better in this moment? I don't know about that. And so it's a time to really examine American exceptionalism and think through those ideas and to think about, you know, from that perspective abroad, our ability to really scrutinize and examine those ways in a way that's not filtered through the traditional American lens has been super, super helpful. And, um, and you know, especially from, you know, his experience of been growing up in Northern Ireland, seeing how they've been able to navigate um, the conflict abroad and, 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 and keeping that in mind and knowing that, United States is, is a, it's a young country. You know, our democracy is, is not, you know, we think it's been around forever. It hasn't been. And we're also certainly not the, the first country to be overtaken by populism and, and, and to be, you know, having hatred and, you know, conflict and division and chaos fuel our, our, our country. We're, we're not the first or, you know, we're not going to be the last either. So looking historically and looking around the world and thinking, how do other countries navigate this? is another super important perspective because, you know, I think one of our problems sometimes in the United States is that we can be very insular. We think we are the center of the world. We think, you know, this is this is where everything happens. But if we step out for a minute, we can really learn a lot from other countries and we can turn, learn certainly a ton from, from history, which I think is, is what's needed right now. Yeah, I think you're right. We're insular, but also drunk on American exceptionalism. We don't take into account that we're still a young democracy who goes through ebbs and flows uh, and too often we find ourselves in these dark periods because we refuse to weed out the racism that has gotten us in this mess in the first place. Uh, please indulge me. Let me um, opine for a minute here. Um, it, it's almost like I want to look at white America and say, newsflash, you know, shit is not right and it hasn't been right. Black and brown people are constantly vacillating between not doing well and just getting by. And you are trying to convince us that America is great. But who is it great for? 
The time for symbolic gestures is over. We need policy changes and we need them now. I also think that many Americans have the uh, false assumption that one man could not take down the establishment, like the president was just a figurehead um, and that uh, none of his actions or behaviors directly uh, impacts ourselves or people around the world. But we know that that's not true. And what we've learned is that elections have consequences. And we went from trivializing leadership and the impact of politics on our lives to craving for leadership at the highest level. And I think that is a fundamentally powerful shift in our thinking. When you don't have leadership, you really feel it. And I think that with the new administration, there comes a lot of optimism and renewed opportunity for conversation and the possibility of massive changes in policy that primarily focus on establishing equity, that focuses on um, on, on establishing policy that benefits black and brown people. But we also know that there is so much work to be done. What are your thoughts on the prospect of renewed optimism in the advent of our new administration headed by President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris? Well, I think, you know, something that kind of, something I really appreciate about, uh, you know, President-elect Biden is that, you know, he's coming into this position and it's different than, you know, presidents in our past. You know, with Obama, we, it was so much hope and so much optimism and like so much hope, you know, what, what's going to happen in the future. And, and, you know, I thought, you know, he was an incredible leader and he did what he could. But with Biden, it's almost like there's some apprehension there, which I almost think is a healthy apprehensiveness. You know, there's, there's some people are kind of uncertain in a way that I think is actually is a healthy thing because we're not putting all our marbles on on uh, President-elect Biden to get this done. We're saying, okay, we also need, we need to come in and we need to make this, you know, we need to get this done as well. So, so that's something I do, I do almost appreciate in a way that, you know, maybe there's not always the same energy around uh, President-elect Biden, but I really do appreciate um, that I think, you know, he's empowering more people in a way to kind of bring it upon themselves. But I also really do think that, I do think, you know, despite he's an older white man, I do think in many ways he is a leader of this moment because he is someone who, cares about this country. I mean, and that's something that we haven't had the past couple of years. He cares about this country. He cares about bringing this country together. And he cares about, you know, unity and making sure that, again, making sure justice is based in peace and making sure that peace is based in uh, justice. And I think that, you know, that's central to who he is. And, um, you know, so so I am I am certainly optimistic about about his ability to do that. And I, and you know, one of the first things he did have to say about um, the uh, the attack on the Capitol is that if those are black and brown folks, you know, that won't have even happened. So I was appreciative to hear him out the gates acknowledge that because, I mean, there's just no question on that regard. So I think, um, you know, I think I think he will be a good leader. And I think, of course, Kam uh, Kam Kamala Harris in, in office as well, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris um, being there will be a huge uh, presence. And she's going to, you know, she's a fighter in the best way possible. And she's she's someone that she likes to get shit done. And she's going to be committed to doing so. She comes from, you know, a family that is focused on, you know, civil rights and equality and, and, and equity. And I think, um, you know, it's top of mind for her. I don't think it's getting lost in her brain about how important this moment is, how important that we address it is. Um, so I, I, I am optimistic about the leadership that we have right now. Yeah, I think what makes me especially optimistic is that we have an administration that's going to play ball with the media in a healthy way. 
in my work as a public health doctor, I deal a lot with vaccine hesitancy, and it exists in every community, all walks of life, it's everywhere. And, uh, you know, that makes sense to me, right? Given all of the misinformation that has been out there, obviously the speed at which the vaccine, um, you know, has been developed, uh, the history of uh, medical experimentation by the American government, etc., that makes a lot of sense. But I also think that the media plays a huge role in the misinformation that's out there. Right. Um, And I think that that's become all too commonplace in large part due to the influence of our president. Right. Who has certainly contributed to this and inflamed the uh, the situation um, by not playing ball with uh, different uh, media outlets, by uh, constantly, um, you know, poking the bear of of misinformation, if you will. Um, And I think that the field of journalism and media has suffered for it. Right. Um, but I would be remiss to just sort of blame the the president for all of the issues that uh, journalism and the media has. Right. I think that we have been uh, flirting with danger for a long time. And I think that this is an incredible opportunity for us to return back to high journalistic standards. So I'm excited for that. I'm excited for a return to standards that's rooted in journalistic integrity so people can be confident in the information that they receive. We want people to believe in science. We want people to believe in election results and genuine, vetted, factually correct information. We're consumed by so much information that the least we should expect from our leaders, and that includes people like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and others in the tech world, the least that we can um, that we can expect from them is the delivery of real information. So what are your thoughts about the role of media in uh, getting us into and out of <laughs> this mess that we're in? You know, it's complicated. And it's one I think about all the time because, you know, first of all, you know, there's different, there are different media outlets. You know, we have, there's Fox News, there's Newsmax and um, OAN, there's MSNBC. You know, so it's sometimes I have a hard time saying, you know, media as a whole, because these are thousands of people and different outlets and different approaches. But that being said, you know, I think, you know, I think media in this moment, it's a really important role. I mean, they have an incredibly important role. And and media has such an important part in shaping our perception of the world. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people have lost some trust of media over the past couple of years, whether that's because the leader of our country has, um, you know, vilified journalists and, and reporters in the media, um, which, you know, going forward, I think under Biden won't be happening, at least certainly not to that degree. Um, but I think as, you know, as, a, as an industry, the media industry, um, really needs to focus on, I think really needs to focus on the stories that they tell. I think we certainly saw that with the, with the election, you know, some people were saying, you know, oh, like, you know, super surprised about the Latinx turnout and how some um, Latinx people went for Trump. Well, if you were reading Latinx journalists, you would have known that, or, you know, if you're reading, if you, if you were paying attention to these, um, you know, different communities around the country other than your own, you wouldn't have been surprised about that. Or, you know, this summer when people are like, I didn't know race and racism, you know, was an issue in the United States. Well, if you were paying attention and certainly paying attention to, you know, the journalists covering it, well, you would have known. So, you know, as much as I think it is such an important time for media to do some introspection and, and um, you know, I think it's a really important time for 
certainly the people on TV to be doing, um, to be extra thoughtful. I think of someone like Abby Phillip, I think is such an important example of someone who's super thoughtful on media, who's, you know, on television, on CNN. She's someone, she comes with, you know, nuance and thought, and she challenges what you have to think about the world, as opposed to, you know, someone who, um, you know, maybe someone like Tucker Carlson, who is less interested in, in, channel, in challenging his, his audience as he is um, telling them, this is what's going on, and this is what's going to happen, and it's going to be a really horrible event. So, you know, I think certainly broadcast news has, has a role that they could be more thoughtful, getting more voices on, getting more representation on, making sure they're not just, you know, covering the, the same old things and, and getting more, um, you know, more coverage across the board. And, but then I also think it's on people to be seeing media as an important tool for, for information and, and for each of us to be thinking about how are we rewarding good journalism in this moment? What are we subscribing to? You know, what are we reading? Are we reading those long-form articles that give us the history and the context that we need to understand the world? Or are we just going for the short, the short clips on social media that tell us what we want to hear? You know, so I think you know, it's, on, it's on the media industry, but it's also on the media consumers to really be thinking about how we're navigating this moment in the most thoughtful way possible. I think that the only pushback that I would say, I completely agree with 99% of what you said, but the only pushback that I would say is that we have, uh, and I'm going to end on an, on an education note since you are in the education space, uh, one of the fundamental problems uh, that is sort of adjacent to media consumption is this growing uneducated populace that we have in this country. Some of these long form articles and videos are, quite frankly, um, they are written at a level that our populace on average cannot consume. Uh, and so that is a huge problem, right? And so me, again, as a public health doctor, sort of that identity um, puts front of mind just equity, right? It's not just racial equity for me, right? For me, I'm, I'm thinking about equity and I'm thinking about educational opportunity, advancement at work, uh, decreasing the racial wealth gap, uh, decreasing the gender pay gap. These are all things that are front of mind because if we don't get closer to this center, right, then um, all of the other work that we do as like amazing journalists and educators, et cetera, it falls on deaf ears. I, I, I experienced this as a, as a professor at St. Francis College. Like I'm teaching public health, but I also need to make sure that sort of the baseline of education, the baseline of critical thinking skills that people have to be able to uh, receive, accept, consume, dissect, break down, uh, and then sort of use the information, right? Not regurgitate, but use the information. I need to make sure that that floor is a lot higher uh, than than what it is. And so, um, I guess you know, my my fi final thought, uh, you know, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is sort of um, what are your thoughts on this sort of growing. Um, uh, uneducated populace or lower educated populace um, and how, uh, you know, and how, you know, media sort of like intersects with, uh, with that group. I, before you answer, I do want to say one thing is that there is a myth, everyone out there, there is a myth that uh, many of the protesters and rioters were part of this sort of um, uneducated populace. There is a lot of news that is coming out that are saying that these people are um, ex-military trained individuals, especially some of the um, leaders of, of the protests. And so I, I do want to acknowledge that it's not just uh, lower socioeconomic people who are upset and fed up with government and the establishment, but we do have to acknowledge that people are fighting against their self their own self-interest right i think there are many uh politicians out there 
uh, mainly Bernie Sanders, who have been saying for years, free education, free college education for all, you know, has been saying, hey, let's open up new industries like uh, renewable energy, right? Uh, let's, you know, let's open up new industries. And there has been a huge reluctance uh, to go into those industries. And quite frankly, our lower socioeconomic populations who would benefit the most from that tend to have the loudest sort of um, objectionary voice uh, to those to those measures. So sort of what are I, I, I put a lot out there for you. So what are your what are your thoughts on that? immediate thoughts and then I'll kind of dig into it but the first immediate thought is I appreciate disclaimer because I mean there were suburban moms from my affluent white community that were there you know these and then so to your point these are certainly not just um, you know disenfranchised white people in the Midwest who are anxious about losing their jobs and so therefore they're you know finding a uh, a savior in Donald Trump, and, and that's what they're moved by. These are people that seemingly live fulfilled life, seemingly are well educated, went to college, maybe even have master's degrees, and have progressed, you know, in their uh, professional life. So, and and, and they're still finding something um, to uh, appreciate and root on for in Donald Trump. So I think that's something to really worth examining, for, uh, first of all. But also uh, to your point about uh, you know folks voting against their self-interest, I think um, you know one specifically incredible example of this is is with healthcare there's actually a book called dying of whiteness and it's about you know people were on board for this idea of um, you know expanding healthcare coverage until they associated it with obama with obamacare and then you know there were there were legit specific instances where people were willing to die rather than take this health care from someone who they saw as an other as an enemy as someone who wasn't on their side so you know when we say that these ideologies are do or die, sometimes they really are, and it's and it's actually pretty profound and incredible, and and and, and you know scary, and it's something that we really need to work through. So, but you know the role of education and media and all of this, I mean, it's such an important one. I think you know for me, I wasn't a great student. I didn't navigate the education system, feeling like you know I had something to contribute. I often felt like um, you know when I was sharing a different opinion, it was seen as a disruption. Or I was, you know, when I was, you know, saying something that, um, you know, asking too many questions, it's like, you know, don't go there. We need to stay on focus. We need to stay on topic. So, so my point being about the education system is that we really need to make sure our education system is, is, you know, it's tailored to the needs of students right now, which is those critical thinking skills, which is the ability to think within nuance and self-examine and question their own, um, you know, question their own perspective of the world, question their own opinions. I certainly think it's moving in that direction in education. There's um, a focus on social emotional learning, and that's about being in touch with our emotions and, and how we deal with one another, but obviously that plays into these ideas of critical thinking skills. Um, I'm a super strong advocate of moving towards a more neuroscience-based education system where we really think about children and how their brains develop um, and, and thinking about that more and how we teach them day to day, and I'm sure you know any teacher could speak on that better than I could, but um, you know just thinking about young middle schoolers, when, when their brains are developing and they're going through you know this rapid process of pruning and you know making more connections and stuff like that they really want to put themselves out there they want to explore these thoughts they want to have space to explore different opinions so why would we give them you know why would we lay out a rubric that is so rigid that says you need to memorize x y and z that you know don't explore x y you know don't explore that stay on tasks stay focused on this we need to give kids that flexibility and we need to do it at a time when they're 
brains are wired for it. I mean, that's such an, that's, I mean, you know, the middle school and high school time is such a precious time that we can really be bringing an electorate, you know, that is more informed and more nuanced in their thinking and more uh, willing to be critical of their own perspective of the world. So, so, you know, certainly I think that's education across the board. And, and, and again, for me, I went to a private Catholic high school, you know, I got a great education. I still didn't feel like it gave me the proper tools to prepare me you know, for the world going on. Um, but, you know, that being said, we certainly need to prioritize education specifically for those, um, you know, at the, from the lowest socioeconomic classes. I think that's such an important point. Um, and for me, one of my dreams is that education is a, is a policy issue that people vote on. That, you know, when you are watching the State of the Union or when you're watching a debate, how often is education brought up as like something we really need to focus on and something that we're going to vote on? And it's like, I'm looking at this person's education policy versus that person's education policy. Well, education really is at the core of all of this. You know, this is this is really a, this is an opportunity for us to to invest. You know, if you're on the right and you're fiscally conservative and you're worried about a strong return on investment, well, education's a great investment, you know? If you're on the left and you're really concerned about equity and making sure that people are exposed to different opportunities and able to succeed, well, education is a great area to really focus on that. So I really hope that education, we can um, mobilize people to really think about education in a critical way. Unfortunately, I think since so many people, you know, since we all go through the education system ourselves, we think that that gives us enough perspective to have an opinion on it. Well, no, we really need to put our teachers and educators at the center of that conversation to be informing our um, you know, perspectives on education. And then we really need to vote on it. We need to be thinking about it. We need to be talking about it. We need to talk about what that means. So um, you know, education plays a huge role in all of this. It plays a huge role in that uh, media consumption. And, and, it's, and I totally hear you where you know, tailoring articles in a way that, you know, can reach the most amount of people. And it's not just these long research papers or things behind paywalls or things that people can't easily access. We need to make sure all these, these uh, you know, media is accessible for people. Um, but we also need to make sure that we are, uh, you know, bringing forward an electorate uh, and um, that, is, that is informed and ready to be engaged in all of that. So, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic about all of that. I think we can do it. Um, again, it's just going to have to take the political will and the priority and the acknowledgement of our politicians that we've been falling short. Um, you know, we haven't been doing enough. And, and it starts with our leaders and we need to be doing more um, going forward, certainly. Yeah, I think we'll get there, especially if we accept our roles as the bridge to a more knowledgeable and literate electorate. Um, that is a must for us to build up a more educated populace in the future, that's for sure. Thank you so much, Gabby, for being here with us. Your words have not fallen on deaf ears. Uh, the work to achieve equity in this country is not in the hands of black or brown or indigenous folks alone, but it's our collective responsibility to achieve equity in this country. So thank you so much for locking arms with us and doing as much as you do on the ground. You're an example and an inspiration for all, and I can't wait to have you on next. Thank you. Oh, well, I'm so appreciative that you'd even think to have me on. And I'm, you know, I'm so excited. And I just want to say, you know, listen, I come in here mostly above all as just a person, as just a friend, as just someone who cares about this country, hardly an expert on any of this stuff. So I just want to certainly put forward the opinion that if, if, if I can have these different, different, difficult discussion, I think really anyone can. And I'm optimistic about that. It's just a matter of will. So, so I'm hopeful and I can't thank you enough for having me on. 
Thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, drop us a line at HOH the podcast on Instagram. Stay safe, wear a mask. And if you fall within the 1A or 1B category groups, make sure you get vaccinated. See you all next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.